Good evening, everyone. Um, I need to be very careful. A Glaswegian voice with a microphone is not the best um, <laughs> mix. But um, welcome to M Pavilion and tonight's um, event, which is a discussion um, titled Aging Melbourne. Um, most livable city are looming disaster. I'd like to begin proceedings by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land at which this event is taking place, the land of the Wurundjeri, and pay respect to their elders and to their families, both past and present. Now, I first of all want to um, pay tribute to Timothy Moore from Sibling Architecture. Tonight's event and the whole day of activities here at M Pavilion were really instigated by Tim and um, by Sibling. And I think it's a really important context. Sibling architecture, and they'll probably be quite embarrassed by me saying this, because I think there's about four of them in the audience. But sibling are one of the most dynamic young practices that are emerging in Melbourne. And I think it's actually really telling that they've orchestrated this event. Um, Aging, and certainly over the last 30 years of education, I've been in and around within the design fields Aging has not been seen as one of the most interesting topics, particularly within students. Um, Brian Kidd, um, who's um, emeritus professor at Melbourne University, has been pushing this discussion for since the late 70s, really. Um, but he's one of the few in, in the Australian context who's actually really been opening up a discussion around aging and, and, and aged care. So I think it's really interesting that Sibling and Timothy have orchestrated today's activities and tonight's events. So maybe it's a sea change that um, younger practices are starting to see the opportunity and the importance of a discussion like this. We, we place, put so much emphasis on issues of schooling, learning environments and play. And really, it's time we started to look at the seriousness, but also the opportunities around ageing. So thank you to Timothy and to Sibling for orchestrating the event. It's also a partnership with Harry, who are the Aging Research Initiative up at Melbourne University, which I'm also part of. Harry was established about three years ago to look at um, pan-faculty, pan-university research opportunities. And the major initiative that came out of that was the Master of Aging programme, which was launched 18 months ago, a one-and-a-half-year fully online um, um, master's programme. What's interesting about it is five faculties teach into it, it includes ethics of ageing, technology and ageing. Um, it includes economics of ageing and we run design for ageing. Growing cohort of students, we've got about over 150 enrolled um, online and again showing the importance of um, cross-disciplinary um, discussions and working. A whole series of research projects have started to emerge out of that as well. One's looking at the role of art galleries and museums in terms of the ageing population. Um, so the future design um, of exhibition display and galleries and importance of, of um, cultural institutions in relation to ageing. We have got a fascinating panel tonight um, who will speak for a very short period of time on very specific topics. Um, but importantly, this is a discussion. I think it's a fantastic M Pavilion this year and it really offers the opportunity for very open dialogue. So we don't want this to be a panel talking to you. We really want to open this to the floor and get more of a discussion going. So without further ado, I will introduce the panel very briefly. Um, so Kim Duffy joins us again from the Melbourne School of Design and the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. Kim is Professor of Architecture and Urban Design. He also teaches urban theory 
um, at the University of Melbourne, and his research is very broad, but it covers social issues in architecture and urban design, um, which intersect with morphology of cities, urban identity and place. We also have Jenny Waycott, um, again from the University of Melbourne, senior lecturer in the School of Computing and Information Systems, who will talk to the importance of technology for social connections by reflecting on her recent work, which is focused on the design and use of social technologies for and with older adults and creative uses of new technologies for social inclusion. We've also got Lorraine Calder, um, Head of Planning and Design at Australian Unity Retirement Living. Now, Australian Unity, a fascinating organisation. I had the benefit two years ago of getting a tour um, of, the, of the facility up in Carlton. Um, and Australian Unity designs and constructs seniors living precincts, which include retirement villages, both vertical and broad acre, um, aged care facilities and health and wellbeing services with a focus on sustainability, affordability, inclusiveness and high personal community amenity. So, Tim, I'll hand over to you to introduce the demographics. Okay, I think before we jump into the topic, um, I can go over a few of the, I guess, the context of what is happening in terms of the demographic changes and the trends that we are seeing as well. So just quickly, I think we all know that our cities, towns and suburbs are growing and ageing at the same time. Um, People are living longer. Uh, The life expectancy of humans has almost doubled in the last 100 years from 40 to 80, and in Australia it's about 82 um, in terms of life expectancy. And Australia sees one of the highest life expectancies in the world if you look at the World Health Organization list after Singapore, Switzerland and Japan. So can Australia be a purveyor on this topic? Um, this has seen a shift in the bell curve um, in terms of population. With It's expected that about a quarter of Australians will be over 65 by 2053. But when you look at people aged over 65, one quarter of them will be living alone as well. So a new category has emerged or is starting to be discussed about for the last uh, two decades or so, the third age or the young old, where people have an active lifestyle. They may have retired or be partly engaged in work, but it may be decades to reach the point that they may require assistance or care. I think it's also interesting that people aged over 50 today, who are about one-third of the population of the world, own 80% of its wealth. So this presents a heating mix of potential political and economic power, although I think we all know inequality is also increasing in the world. Sorry, hay fever, by the way. Just, I'll wipe my nose a few times. So these observations were also acknowledged by the United Nations, which describes population ageing as unprecedented, persuasive, enduring, and with profound implications. The extension of life puts pressure on society to address this new young age, such as issues of civic participation, medical care, pensions, public space, entertainment and access, along with housing to respond to emerging leisure and medical needs. So some of the challenges that come up is the need to extend working lives and build communities that tackle isolation, confront the many high street and regional towns in decline, and the need for new types of housing and neighbourhoods which we'll touch upon today. So the question is how is design responding to this channel challenge? So we'll have a conversation um, maybe for about 10 minutes or so, 20 minutes, and then we'll try and bring in the audience, have a larger conversation as well, and we're quite happy to take comments or precedents that people bring from their own work, if you're experts, or also just if you want to contribute as well. I guess the first question, though, to Kim Dovey is, we talk about livability quite a lot, so what do we mean by a livable city, and is Melbourne livable, before we jump into whether it's livable for all types of populations? I was warned that I'd be asked this question. Um, It's it's a very complicated one, but 
Uh, Melbourne is uh, judged by most of the uh, league tables to be close to the top of this uh, world table of uh, livable cities. I have to say, first of all, that th that's not really the answer that I'm going to give because I don't really trust the, uh, the way in which they measure those tables. Uh, for me, livability has, is a much broader and um, much deeper kind of an understanding and, and in that regard, I think Melbourne is, um, would come close to the top of the tables anyway. Uh, but only part of Melbourne. The, uh, the central part of Melbourne, the inner city and central Melbourne, which is well serviced with public transport, uh, where the densities are higher than they are out in the suburbs, uh, and where there is a very rich uh, mix of different functions. There's lots of jobs and there's lots of residential, uh, and there's lots of uh, other kinds of production and lots and lots of cultural stuff going on. So in that sense, I would say my model of a livable city is not far from the kind of thing that we know and understand, or some of us know and understand, of the central and inner city of Melbourne, uh, but in contrast, really, to the uh, low-density, monofunctional suburbs that are ill-served by public transport. So my way of summing this up, I suppose, is what I call the urban DMA, the density, the mix, and the access if you get if the, the density has to be above certain minimal levels to make city life livable, you have to bring things closer together. You have to make them uh, walkable access between jobs and all the various uh, opportunities and residential options. You have to have a mix of different functions. You have to and be able to walk between them or get good public transport access. And you have to have good access networks, and that means accessible to all people of any age. I think it's interesting when you talk about the monoculture of the suburbs and Lorraine, I want to bring you into the conversation here where you're looking at housing typology models for the inner cities, so vertical dwellings, uh, apartment buildings. You're also looking at uh, suburban residential care in Glenwaverley, I believe, but also in Mornington, so more rural uh, dwellings. So how do you adapt these different typologies and how do you address this idea that density could be a problem to livability? Um, so I think that... Um any development needs to be responsive to the context, the site and the local community um, and that's how we get our three different um, typologies. Mornington, we've got a village out in Mornington and it is um, a car based place so we do have lots of garages and lots of car parks in Mornington but we've also got a um, Green Acres development there so we've got um, parklands, we've got children's playgrounds, um, we've got walking paths so it's very much an urban um, culture and an urban, uh, so, sorry, a, suburb, a, a rural suburban type of um, uh, design response um, which reflects the, the, the environment there. Um, when we're going to, to the suburbs, such as Glen Waverley and Vermont, we've um, responded to the design with uh, what we call um, a more village square response. So we've got medium density, um, small apartment buildings arranged around um, a, a village square. Um, and then when we move to the urban environment, that's where we start to get into the um, vertical villages. And I think the vertical village is a response to a, an area where people are used to um, closer living, where they're used to some amount of high-rise, um, and therefore um, it's an appropriate um, built form in, in that area. And then if you're building kind of discrete precincts or uh, estates or apartment buildings in these different areas, how integrated are they into existing networks or fabrics, for example, 
one the people that move into these places are from those neighbourhoods, which overcomes the challenge of travelling long distances to see your relatives or partner. Um, are they integrated within public transport? Do you pick sites based on all these kind of characteristics of a livable city? Yes, so we definitely do. Um, so, so we're looking for sites the whole time that are close to public transport and close to um, shopping centres. And we're looking to build um, retirement living and aged care communities where people are living now. So I think previously, if we went back 10, 10 years ago... Uh, aged care and retirement living was pushed to the fringes. And so it meant that people had to um, relocate um, quite a long way from their existing community. And so, so you're looking at people that are already, they're not ageing in place, they're divorced from their, their community of many years, from their family and their friends and the activities that they've experienced, the clubs that they've always um, been a part of. So part of our um, uh, model is to try and find sites um, in local communities, uh, perhaps have smaller um, uh, villages and smaller aged care facilities uh, that respond really to that local community. And so uh, we will um, build something that, that is the market price of the people that are living in that community so they can afford it and it's the type of accommodation that they're used to and would like to live in. And, um, for example, with the apartment in Carlton as opposed to Glen Waverley, I guess what the apartment they're living in in Carlton is very different to an investor apartment, for example. Is the quality of apartment different? So it attracts different types of people? Um, well, but they are quite different to an investment um, apartment. I think a lot of the investment apartments uh, are just that. So a lot of people will buy them not to live in, but... Um, because it's a product that will um, gain in value and has been shown to... Gra- to increase in value, whereas our product is for somebody to live in. So we find that our um, apartments are perhaps twice the size of an um, ordinary um, market apartment. So a two-bedroom apartment, we'd probably not go much lower than about 95 square metres. Which is different to, like, a, on the market it would be 60 metres 60, or so. 60, yes. Yeah. Um, and then we try and overlay what we call... Um, an adaptability um, scenario. So we'll look quite closely at the um, adaptable um, housing code um, and we'll design our apartments so that anyone moving in that is fully functional uh, can adapt their apartment as they age and therefore they also um, don't have to move out of that community um, in a hurry. They can remain in that community. One of the other things we do um, is we um, put um, aged care and uh, retirement living and home care services and day respite and rehab services all on the one site. So it also means that if one partner um, has more care needs than the other, uh, they can continue to live in the same house or one may need to live um, in the aged care facility but they'll still be living in the same community. Um, So that's an important model for us. Can I ask, Lorraine, I mean, I had the benefit of walking around it with you. Um, And I was in a discussion with Brian Kidd recently about, you know, what's happened in Australia over the last 40 years and he was getting quite frustrated with the cycle of large institution, where he thinks in the early 80s there was a big political shift to try and help to reduce the scale of um, residential aged care. And he thinks we've come full cycle and we're back to the big institution again. Um, from um, Australian Unity's point of view, what do you see as the future of aged care? I mean, you are obviously trying to really predict what's, what's next. Um, um- 
So, Ellen, I, I think that you're right. Um, so what we've done is we do have um, quite large aged care facilities. I'll just wait for... Um, so we do, we do have quite large aged care facilities, but what we do is we break them down into households um, and we run a household model. Um, so that means that um, uh, most of our residents uh, have short corridors. Uh, there's a central hub that has a kitchen, a living room, an outdoor space, um, a dining room, um, and usually we'll have two small bedroom wings off that area. It'll also have a front door, um, as I mentioned, a garden, and so people are living in these smaller communities. Um, we'll connect them with what we call a main street, an internal main street, so people can walk along that main street into other households, and along the main street they'll also find um, larger community spaces such as coffee shops, a hairdresser, perhaps an activities space, a library, those sorts of things. So that, that's, that's our response to sort of within the big scale to scale down. And can I ask just in terms of culturally, where are you looking for clues? I mean, we always get caught up in conversations about the Dutch culture around aged care and how amazing um, their focus on, on ageing is. Um, but even looking towards Singapore and some of the high-rise facilities we've got there. I mean, are you looking overseas to any particular areas? Um, so, so when we first... Um, uh got our model, um, which we call Better Together, which is the household model. We did look overseas. Um, so we looked at Dutch models. Um, I think we looked at Humanitas and Greenhouse and Eden and various other models. Uh, also Alzheimer's Australia, um, their data and literature as well. And I think all of, um, all of the models that showed healthy aged care living were enabling models and they were in small households. And so that is, that, that is where we've started from. And I'm not saying that um, that is where we leave it. So we're still looking at um, uh, providing more cultural diversity, integration perhaps with childcare, um, uh, diversity for... Aboriginal and Indigenous people, we're talking to various different cultural groups. Um, so we're trying to um, also drill down on how we bring more community in. Um, we get our community out more um, and we have a range of um, cultural diversity and other types of diversity um, in our communities. Um, I want to ask, go move to the topic of isolation in particular. If you're in aged care, you are with other people, but there are a lot of people living isolated in their suburban home, maybe less mobile or different social networks. And one of the things of, of today was we had different workshops or activities, and one of the important workshops for me was that there was a gay and lesbian and transsexual intersex seniors ball group that came in at lunchtime, and they came in to talk about this, the seniors ball. And for them, it was one moment where they could come and celebrate who they are, which they can't often do in reti retirement centres because um, they're not often out to their family and then to have to come out again to um, people in aged care it can be quite a daunting experience. But they talked also about isolation for them and, and having monthly dance meetings were really important. So I wonder, to bring Jenny into the conversation, a lot of the work that you do is around um, isolation and technology and looking at how... Uh, people 65 plus use technology and deal with isolation. So can you maybe talk about some of the things that you're doing at the moment? Sure. Actually, I might start talking about the work I've done in the last few years, which is really focused on that issue of social isolation and looking at people who are living independently at home, ageing in place, but they are um, clients of aged care providers. So they receive home-based care, um, but they 
most of the people that we've worked with were very isolated in their own homes and had trouble getting out and taking part in all of those community activities that are so important for, you know, feeling like you're part of a community. Um, so we worked with Benitas, an aged care provider, and we focused actually on people in their 80s and 90s, so mostly people in the older age, the old age spectrum. Um, and we designed, a, developed a, an iPad app that they used to share, create and share photos. Very simple. There's lots of social media apps now that do the same sort of thing. But a few years ago, you know, it, it was... Um, um, I, I guess it, it, um, some of the social media tools weren't quite as ubiquitous as they are now. So it was something like fairly 2008 new. 2008 rather than... Well, it was 2012 when we started. But it was fairly new for the people in that, um, that age group. Yeah. So, and, and also we felt there was a need to kind of develop an entree technology, so something that was a fairly easy, um, uh, an easy first step into using this kind of tool. So we, and it was, it was also a closed social network that we developed. So we set it up so that the people we worked with who were clients of Benitas were connected to each other via the app that we developed and they created and um, shared photos with each other and, and messages with each other and they developed a, a sense of community with each other even though they were living in different suburbs and they weren't able to attend the kind of the social activities that the aged care provider organised for other clients. Um, we found that that was really good, worked really well for some people but did not work for others. So there was a real mix in terms of whether this was uh, a, uh, this was a, a, a I don't want to use the word solution, but whether this was a good solution for people in this um, in this situation. So what we found is that some people really embraced it and they shared lots of photos and they really took to the kind of self-expression opportunities that that gave them. So that we had one man who was actually in his 90s and he was one of our oldest participants and he shared the most photos of anybody in the group. Um, and a lot of his photos were reflections on his experiences of ageing. So he had these captioned photos where he, he shared a photo of his house and said, this is my prison for most of the time. And then he used that prison theme and that ran through a lot of the things that he shared. And they were really quite sad, but he also injected a bit of humour. And what we found is that this, this was an opportunity for him to talk about those experiences with others who were in the same situation and it was an opportunity he wasn't normally getting. You know, it wasn't something he could talk to his children or grandchildren about and um, it, this was an empathetic group that he could share this, this stuff with. Um, but then there were others who really struggled to use the technology and really felt a sense of failure because they were struggling and we had to be really careful in, in not kind of exacerbating people's feelings of... Uh, loss and um, isolation as they were ageing. So that was, that was previous work. And do you find that then we often under, underestimate people's capabilities and capacities? Absolutely. There's so, much, uh, there's so many negative stereotypes about older people and technology. And you know, with that example, this was an, a retired engineer who was really enthusiastic and we found a lot of other enthusiastic and... Um, very eager to learn people that we've worked with. And at the moment, I'm doing research where we're looking at um, designing virtual reality experiences with older people. We're working with a group of uh, people aged 70 plus. They come to monthly workshops. We call them the technology explorers. So they come in and they kind of explore a range of emerging technologies with us. And they've been absolutely fantastic at critiquing the technology and, and talking about what it could do for them, but also what it doesn't do and, and where the problems are. And I, 
our group is really diverse in terms of their IT background. So we've got some people who are really um, computer uh, pioneers. You know, they, they were using computers in the 1960s, ranging all the way to people who, who are uh, late adopters and have adopted technologies, just, you know, mobile phones or smart um, uh, tablet devices in the last five years or so. So w we think it's really important that we invite these people into the conversation about technology and make sure they're involved in decisions about designing and using technology, especially when it's being used to support them. And, yeah, their, their, their opinions and their contributions are really valuable. I'm also interested in you're working in VR at the moment with uh, different groups, and if I have to make an avatar of myself, I'm probably going to be, you know, not a sexy alien, but I'm going to come up with some kind of pretty out-there avatar. So I wonder, with the, with the VR that you're doing at the moment, what avatars do your groups make? Yeah, so the technology explorers that we're working with, they have been designing avatars that will represent themselves in a, a, a social VR experience where they will interact with others. Um, and they've designed a range of avatars. Um, quite often it's an ideal self, but that's not necessarily a younger self. So an ideal version of an older person. And what we've found too is avatar creation tools are not designed for older people. So... Older people can't make themselves look old in an avatar. They can make themselves a little bit old, but not really old. Um, and that can be a bit frustrating. Sometimes people want to represent themselves as they are. Uh, but others want to kind of, you know, do want to play around with that identity and, and making themselves sort of stronger and able to do things that they're not necessarily able to in real life now. Just one last question before we open it up a bit more. I was also interested, we're often talking about connectedness. Do some people just want to be left alone? Like with the groups yes. that you deal with? Do some people just want to be isolated um, and do what they do without being connected by technology? Do you get resistance? Yes, we do. And it's, I think, there's a real um, temptation to have a kind of paternalistic attitude when you go in and say, oh, you know, we need, everyone needs to be socially connected, everyone needs to be using technology, you can't get left behind. But actually, some people are very aware that they're getting near to the end of their life and they don't want to be connected and they, they want to be left alone and we have to respect that. Maybe be left alone, but maybe, maybe a better phrase I should have said is being independent. So right. maybe being independent, um, having interactions on the street but not necessarily talking to people on social media all the time. Um, I was interested, Kim... Um, reading a paper of yours recently about the paradox of home and community and talking about the difference between a home and neighbourhood and expanding this idea. So I was hoping we often talk about ageing, we often think about the home itself and not about the precinct or the neighbourhood. So could, could you give us a bit more cues to think about how we could consider the neighbourhood a home? Yeah, um, I, I was a bit curious as to why I was invited here this evening because I actually am, I'm no expert on ageing, I, I need to tell you. And then I got here and I realised I'm the oldest person on the panel, so <laughs> I've got some kind of authority. But I did, I did once do some research on the meaning of home, which was based, um, as Timothy says, in, in trying to understand this very um, intangible concept of home. You know, and at the time I was doing this, it goes all the way back to my PhD a long time ago, um, I was uh, taken by the way in which we sort of paradoxically name the, uh, the institutions 
uh, after the very thing that uh, the elderly often don't want to go to. You know, we, we call it a home. You know, when I, when I was a kid, I lived in Perth and there was the Sunset Men's Home, you know, Sunset, beautiful, but it just, uh, uh, just named after a kind of an inevitable beautiful decline. Um, and, of course, the home, putting, putting your parents in a home was the, the thing that they didn't want, that everybody resisted facing and so on. So I was interested in what this concept of home meant in, in its best and its worst kind of ways. And of course it's one of those th words like place that uh, is multi-scalar. You know, it's everything from a, a, a chair to a, a room to a, a house or a building to a, a neighbourhood and a city and indeed a nation. Um, so it's, it's, these are places that help us to feel at home and the neighbourhood is really just uh, one of the middling scales of this that uh, seems to me is, is, is fundamentally linked to all of the other scales. That's the, the, the way to think about this, is this is a multi-scalar uh, um, concept. So that, um, and the neighbourhood I think is, is a great deal, it's... It, the, you know, the concept of home is very intangible. If you interview people about it, you actually don't get very far because so much of what home is about is unselfconscious. It's one of those concepts that is actually um, triggered uh, when you don't have it. You know, you, you stay away. It used to, you know, the, the, the word nostalgia began as a disease. You know, it was people would, when people were able to travel long distances and stay away from home, uh, in the 17th or 18th century, I think it was, the, um, they'd get sick. They'd go see a doctor. He'd say, oh, you've got nostalgia. You have to go home. Um, so that in a sense, home at that level was a familiarity with a place. And it's a familiarity not just with a house, but a, uh, a neighbourhood and a city and uh, is, is something that is uh, em embodied much more than consciously understood. So it's just it's something that we embody in our bones by walking the streets, by encountering the same neighbours, even if we don't like them, you know, uh, or hardly know them. You just you nod to them or a nodding acquaintance. Um, but also the, the networks, the social networks that, um, uh, that sustain community life. Uh, so the concept of home is, is, is kind of ingrained uh, in that and it becomes embodied in the forms of the neighbourhood almost regardless of what those forms are. And therefore, uh, transformational change in the neighbourhood can actually uh, trigger a response, a, a, a homeless experience of, of, of feeling ungrounded because the concept of home is deeply geared to our sense of identity. And in this sense, I think that uh, one of the prejudices we have about the elderly is that, that their identity is, is kind of finished, it's fixed, and it's finished, and it's over. You know, when we, when we look at um, the young and when we're designing environments for the young, we think of them as learning environments. We call them schools and daycare centres and, and we design playgrounds for, their, for them to learn their sensorimotor skills and later their intellectual skills and so on. Do we do the same for the elderly? I don't think so. I think we, we largely treat that sense of identity as, as somewhat fixed. And I think that that's probably a mistake because I think the thing that would most sustain that sense of home is not regarding it as somehow closed, finished, fixed, but as open and dynamic and changing and just as the city and the neighbourhood 
Uh, most neighbourhoods, at least, are open, are dynamic, changing. There's new people. Some people leave. Others come. New friendships are formed. But also new learning experiences, new skills are formed. Uh, I think this is what keeps people mentally active and therefore physically um, alive as well. It's interesting what you said about home and being aware of what home is, and which made me think of what happens when you don't know what home is. So, for example, if you have dementia, Lorraine, I'm interested in... How do you design for that when you're not aware of where your room is or where your house is? Are there architectural cues to deal with this? Yes, there are. And there's, there's been a lot of study and research um, um, written about this. Um, so I think, um, from, from what I know, um, the best way to design for people with um, a cognitive impairment um, is to design in a way that supports and enhances their memory. Uh, so... So that isn't about having a room off a big long corridor because when I step out of that room what I see is a handrail and a hospital looking thing and I think, oh well I must be in hospital, I'll go back into my room and wait for somebody to come and um, serve me. If I step out of my room and I see um, a kitchen or a lounge room or an outdoor space or all of those things, um, I automatically know... Um, that I'm in a home, that I'm in a house that looks like one. If breakfast is being served, I can smell it from the moment that I step out and so I automatically will go and get my breakfast. I'll remember that I'm hungry um, because I have that memory cue. Um, so, 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 so being able to um, identify spaces, not um, dealing with um, foreign things like corridors and handrails um, and hospital-like um, environments, uh, being able to recognise my door as well when I want to go back from the living spaces, there's, a, there's going to be more doors than, than what was in my house, maybe there was four doors in my house, maybe there's six or eight um, in, my, in my memory support house, um, so, so clearly being able to identify why this is my door as opposed to others. Um, so, can, so, I, can I ask, how do you do that? Um, well... Well, I don't think you can do it and have um, great interior design. Um, so, so I do think we have to um, qu question some of those um, uh, some of those things. I think uh, when people are putting their uh, parents into um, care, particularly into memory support care. Um, They'll want to see a beautiful um, household. They won't particularly want to see a door that's plastered with um, Collingwood player of the 1960s um, because, because this is a time in somebody's life where they, they relate to what they liked and what they did in that time. And so by seeing that on their door, um, they will automatically know it is their, their door. Um, so some people with dementia um, are locked in a younger version of their life. And so, so if you have that type of dementia, um, things that uh, remind you of that time will, uh, will assist you to, to navigate the day. Um, and those, those sorts of things will, will, will help. Um, I'm interested, Lorraine, just in terms of... I mean, I certainly went through a whole of architectural education with nobody talking to me about dementia. Um, I mean, what is the future of education um, in relation to design for this ageing um, society? I mean, I suppose also, I mean, how did you get interested in this as an architect? Um, yeah. I think um, uh, I, I became interested 
in it because I found myself doing that type of work. So I found myself doing um, a hospital health type work and a portion of aged care. And I think by nature I'm a pretty passionate person, so anything that I do, um, I want to investigate how to do it best. Um, I, I think that... Uh, from, from what I can tell, there's more being taught um, in the education system, in the university system, perhaps not at a lower level than that, but certainly at architecture school, Swinburne um, has um, uh, interior architecture. They're always exploring um, uh, principles of memory support. Uh, Melbourne University also has a, um, a course that is for ageing. I think this is a master's and it's by choice. Um, but there, that also covers a lot of education on dementia. But I think as a society, um, we lack an understanding of it and we, we, we lack good facilities to support it. So there is a lot of research written, but um, uh, it's unusual that you'll see a new facility built exactly to those principles. And partly that also is because um, uh, it's quite intensive to operate. Um, and so, really, there's the standard government fee for um, uh, aged care provision doesn't really accommodate the, the level of support services you need to run a small uh, a household cottage uh, with the design principles that I spoke about earlier. And so that really needs to change. Um, we do think that... Um, uh, that there, it probably will be a market for it, that people are willing to pay for better care, um, but it is a user-pay um, system. Um, I'm conscious of time, and we probably want to go to the audience very soon, but I want to just go back to Kim before we do that. Um, I mean, Kim, you're, I mean, you, you teach urban theory, um, and um, it's really thinking and speculating about the future city. I mean, I think it's interesting when you look back over the last hundred... I mean, hundred years ago, the civic city um, and the, the idea of the citizen, there was a real investment into public infrastructure, you know, parks um, in relation to well, health and well-being, swimming pools... Maternity centres. Yep, public toilets. Um, and we've watched the decline of that, the public works over the years. A lot of it being privatised. Um, and it really has a big part to play in, in people's kind of social infrastructure and identity. What do you see as the future of, of um, our cities in relation to civicness? Um, well, there's, there's two ways of looking at that. One is uh, what I think will happen. The other one is what should be happening. Um, what I think should be happening is we should be thinking about a city where uh, the elderly and old people are everywhere, where the, there isn't a place for old people. No one asks, you know, uh, where should we house all the children? You know, it's presumed that children are growing up in the, the families they're born into by and large and that those experiments in housing children in orphanages and so on have such a terrible history. Um, I, I think it's... I think we have to move away from the idea that there's a particular kind of uh, elderly housing and talk about... Uh, building the infrastructure to take the various uh, kinds of services that the elderly need uh, to, ev to everywhere, to wherever they are. That means building it into every street, every neighbourhood and indeed every building. Um, I was inspired at one point when I was studying uh, what's known as co-housing where, uh, where people share a whole lot of uh, facilities in, in a, a smallish community and a lot of the co-housing societies would have as a principle that, that they include um, people with young children and they include the elderly and this is sort of not 
um, negotiable. It's, that's part of the deal as to what they want. If they, if they can't, if, they, if the elderly don't simply come and apply, then they go looking for them and so on. So my sense is that we need a city uh, that um, you know, provides for everyone and that the elderly, um, except the extremely disabled, uh, can, in a sense, can get access to everything. So that's a, and that's a very different model than the one we have. The one we have is one where the uh, most urban processes are subject to the... Uh, the constraints of a, um, a neoliberal economy. And a neoliberal economy is one that reduces everything to economics and tends to make decisions based on those, uh, the forms of city that produce the greatest level of economic growth. It's, uh, it's damaging and it's dangerous and it, it's, it's no kind of future. Um, in a society like ours where many of the elderly have quite a lot of um, wealth Indeed, the, my generation, the baby boom generation, which has soaked up so much of the wealth uh, to the expense, expense of some of the younger generations, I imagine that we will spend a lot of that wealth on providing that servicing privately as we age. And I think that's a bit of a tragedy, you know. I mean, a lot of, a lot of investment will go into um, very expensive um, aged care facilities, but they will still not be... Because they're not integrated with the larger city, they will still not uh, really provide that sense of home that I was talking about earlier. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> we just stop there. Yeah, we could end on, the, on the, that high note of clapping. I, I just want to make one quick comment before we open it up. And it's interesting, uh, Kim, what you say about one point, which is co-housing. And conversations came up today was... Um, with some elders we're speaking today about wanting to have communes and how to set this up because we have this monocultural suburb, we have all these houses that were built for four bedrooms, a whole family unit, but now they're sitting there with one or two people in it. So I think there's a potential out there for a lot of designers in the audience to start adaptive reuse of the suburban house and make these kind of communes that you talk about. I don't know how, but I think there's one potential there. Brief comment. I think uh, the, the challenge of adapting the, uh, the monofunctional... Um, detached house suburb is uh, it, it's, it's where the great opportunities are. We often sort of uh, look at or drive through our uh, our city and and we see car parks and fast food restaurants and so on and there's just a look of dismay. I'm trying to teach myself to see everything as an opportunity. You know, every car park is is could be something better. You know, every, and and the suburbs, um, the low density suburbs, are really an opportunity for adaptation. They don't have to stay the way they are. There's enormous amounts of scope and capacity there for uh, increasing the mix and changing the density. Not completely transforming it necessarily. An awful lot of Melbourne suburbs are mature and highly livable environments, but they can be vastly improved through really good design thinking. Okay, we'll open up to the audience. So maybe we'll have about 15, 20 minutes of conversation. Feel free to make a comment or if there's something that you're doing in your own world that you want to share on this topic, just it's feel free to make a comment. But if there are any questions to start off with, Hi, one for Jenny. Um, I just call on a movie that I saw called Still Alice, where Julianne Moore's character is getting early onset dementia and she's sort of aware of this and I think one of the tools that she uses, she 
needs to, she's a professor, so she's doing discussions and um, presentations, and I think she's highlighting words as she's going as a sort of bit of technology that can help her sort of, yeah, move past it. And just on the, to the technology note, I was wondering how much of your studies are going, uh, is there anything going towards sort of memory enhancement or, you know, memory joggers, especially for early onset dementia. I think that memory is one of the worst sort of, um, yeah, symptoms of, of ageing and that, yeah, what, is there anything you're working on? It could even be like grandkids' photos coming up and being like, oh, that's their name. They're coming in five minutes. All right, cool. Oh. Um, I'm not working on anything related to memory specifically and, and the work that I've done so far hasn't looked particularly at people with dementia. Partly that's because it's a really hard... Um, it's a hard topic to, and social isolation was, was difficult as well. So it, it, there's, they're really complex issues and it's really difficult to kind of introduce technology in those spaces. But, that's, um, but there are other people who are doing that work and I think there's a lot of... A lot of everyday technologies that are available now can be used for that, that memory support. Um, so you've got your smartphones and, and so on. And also that issue that you were talking about, Lorraine, about uh, people who are locked in a younger version of themselves. So one of the things that I've heard people say is just fantastic for people with dementia is to give them an iPod loaded up with all of the music from their era and it just, you know, that they're in that world and they're happy in that world. And so there's very simple things that we can use technology to do. Um, I'm sure there are more advanced things that people are working on, but I'm not across all of the dementia research at the moment. Another, another opportunity, I think, is in kind of sharing information about yourself and stories about yourself. So if you, when you do go into a... Um, a care facility, for example, and you kind of have to leave... A lot of our identities are actually wrapped up in our homes, as we were talking about before, but it's also the objects that we keep around in our homes that, that sort of communicate who we are. And if we can digitise those objects and display them in some way to help carers and other people we're interacting with understand who we are, I think there's a real opportunity there for, for technology to, to provide that. Thank you. Hi, um, my name's Tara. I'm um, a young advocate for Dementia Australia, as well as Isabel. Um, just going back to your point for a second, one of the best things that you can do for um, stopping dementia is exercise. 30 minutes of movement a day, make sure you do it. Um, one of the things I was interested to know from a design perspective is the concept of three generations in the one place and having the people sort of in their 40s, if you would like to say that, a lot of people are having babies later in life now. And um, say that people, like my friends, for example, are having babies at 40. And if their parents um, had had them at 40, they'd be obviously 80. But if they were starting to um, show the signs of that elderly sort of um, physique, if you want to call that, or that dependable um, behaviours, that a person that is in that middle generation is required to potentially look after their parent because of the cost factor of aged care, but then also potentially look after their own children because they're trying to actually have their own life and have their own job and, you know, create a, a life in society. So, yeah, my question is around that sort of three-generation set-up and design. 
I can have a, I can have a try at it. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I think it simply comes down to um, individual design um, and uh, and the flexibility and 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 layout and designing for retrofit as well. I mean, a lot of a lot of the problem with a lot of the suburban development you're seeing is the quality. I mean, it's 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 structurally you can't retrofit. Um, I mean, there's a lot of work I was involved in prior to coming to Australia and the UK. We were looking at um, structural systems for housing to allow for adaption. So adding a hoist. Um, I mean, it's difficult to add a hoist to a property um, in a suburban location where you've got very small timber ceiling joists. Um, so I think that's the, the huge issue, is the um, design sensibility um, in terms of layout and, um, and alterations. I mean, I actually spent all of today in the Robin Boyd house up in Wall Street, and it's, it's an amazing house which was designed for three children um, and two adults. I don't know who knows the house, but when you stand there thinking about it, coming along to a discussion about ageing, there's two pavilions with a, with a tensile roof, the front section for the parents, the rear section for the three, three children. And um, there's lovely stories about the children growing into teenagers who would come up the back lane, access their the bedrooms, and leave without interacting with the parents. It was kind of two autonomous units operating under this one roof. And you could imagine that house today. It was built in 1957. And I think it's still an amazing model for adaptability. You know, you could imagine the parents eventually moving into that back section and the kids taking over the front section and the evolution of that. And I think that's the biggest problem. We, we, we do not design, design for that change. Yeah, yeah. So we need to start to think about designing for those three gen generations. Yeah. I have seen examples in Australia where architects on their own have gone and built uh, these different kind of houses. And the, one of the biggest challenges was not only dividing these spaces as lifestyles or families change, people move out. Some of these... A particular project by Officer Woods in Perth where they sold off their back pavilion, we can call it, and so someone else moved in. But then the problem was strata titling and how do you actually deal with electricity and plumbing? And so I think there's a conversation to be had to get around these issues as well. But especially I've seen it done quite a lot in Australia, but it's been individual architects I see propelling that. Uh, hello, my name's Geraldine. I'm a member of the public. I don't have any architectural background, um, but I do live in an apartment um, building, so I'm wondering how the smokers are catered for in the vertical villages um, as, as opposed to the non-smokers, because I find living in an apartment, that's quite a problem for me. I'm a non-smoker. For, for our villages, um, I, I know for a fact for our aged care facilities, uh, they're non-smoking um, and that's for the health of everybody. And I know this is perhaps discriminatory to a degree, but most of our um, facilities um, are non-smoking. Um, and it's partly because we are a wellbeing organisation um, and uh, when we thought about it um, in in depth, we've, that's the way we've decided to go. Um, so, so it's much the way I think the state and the nation is going. Smoking is slowly getting banned from all sorts of places. I do believe it's banned in New Zealand in public places, full stop. 
Um, and uh, I think that is the way. Hopefully it will get phased out completely one day. Hi, my name's Rory. I was just wondering, are there any examples of um, developments, sort of larger scale developments for multi-generational living that incorporate uh, medium or high level care that are sort of bigger than just a single uh, family unit? I can't speak to an example, but I want to maybe draw in Lorraine here. You can't answer that exactly, but... Where are the future trends in terms of Australian unity? Because you look at adaptive reuse of buildings and designing for aged care, but also for lifestyle as well. Is that an option for you? Is that something that you're exploring at the moment? I didn't quite get the gist of the question. So, so multi-generational in the one building? Yeah, so like just talking about being able to incorporate something like a nursing home facility, but with other generations. So... Kids, yeah. you know, people so, in, so, in their so life. we haven't um, we haven't done it in um, in a single building yet, but we have done a precinct. So, for instance, Carlton is a great example because it has social housing, it has um, market housing, it has retirement living, and it has aged care, and it has facilities in the bottom of our aged care building that's open to all of the community. So, we've got a coffee shop that you can access from inside or from outside. We've just building um, medical suites that the community can access. We've also got um, a rehab and a physio and hydro pool that anyone uh, can book an appointment with and access. Um, so so we, we're starting to, to draw the community in, in that way, but um, we haven't yet um, put multi-generation in the same building. At this point in time, we find that our um, customers um, prefer to have their own building um, and so that, that's what they're looking for. They are, there are actually people that are looking for a community full of people of their own mind and their own like, um, and they're looking to do activities and to explore ideas. Um, we, we've looked at um, partnering with a university uh, where we can um, share facilities with students, and so that might mean that we build a retirement village or an aged care on university on a university site. Um, that um, uh, we build community facilities such as a pool and a gym, and the students will get to use that as well as um, uh, our residents. Um, I think also one other thing to say about the Carlton the Carlton Precinct, uh, we've got a job program running from our um, aged care facility for the people in the social housing and the, um, the purpose of that is to try and uh, pr uh, put, a, put a stop in, in some cases to um, inherited um, uh, unemployment. Um, so there's, there's a few things that we're doing but um, I, I don't think um, the customer desire to have everything in the one building is there yet but certainly um, there's a, a many um, high-rise and precinct developments that have them within a stone's throw of each other. Um, hello. Um, 
Why is this an architectural question? And so I, I'm just going to go from personal experience. My, my folks live in Las Vegas, and I'm trying to think what, what, what allows them to live there and, and um, survive and live and have, an, have a nice experience there while their, their family and their grandkids and stuff are uh, back in the UK. Um, Skype? for example, allows them to do that. So, so, so I guess the question, I, I'm not fully articulating this, but what, why is architecture the solution here? Um, I'll just go quickly and then I'll pass it around because I think everybody here has probably got something to say. It's not the only solution. I think the solution is um, it's technology, it's architecture, it's, it is built form, but it's service model. It's, um, uh, you know about being innovative about all these things and in particular um, reinventing the way it has been provided in the past, much as um, Kim has, has mentioned. So it's all those things in combination. Yeah, look, I think... I, it, it depends on what you define as architecture. I mean, the um, recently in Hong Kong, they've ditched the title architecture and called it social design. Um, and I think that probably captures quite a lot of what's going on out there. There's a, lot, there's a big focus now on healthcare, um, which incorporates everything, just societal issues, um, you know, housing, housing affordability. But I think one of, the, one of the really important changes that's coming through, particularly in architectural education, is um, an understanding of e- economics. It's been something that's been alien to the um, the whole discipline of, um, of architecture and architectural education. And I think it's one of the fundamental shifts that's going to help to change the way we do things. If you look at Copenhagen and the, the new cycle track, the cycle highway, 300 kilometres of um, cycling infrastructure, the justification was not about design. It was about the fact it was going to save, I can't remember exactly how much, um, in terms of the healthcare system. Um, and there's a big debate just now about housing, housing affordability. And if it, I mean, to have 3% of, of housing in Australia as social housing is a disgrace, quite frankly. Um, I mean, it's, it's creating this really polar um, society. So the cost of doing nothing in the case of affordable housing and social housing is going to have a huge impact on health and the health system. So I think that the future of design education is really understand an economic argument. You're not going to win the argument in design alone. Um, it's, it's all encompassing in terms of social impact, health and well-being, economics. I um, don't know if that's helped to answer your question. No, but, no, uh, no it does. And, and, but, but also I kind of think, uh, you know, if, if I'm looking at what my parents were trying to do and uh, like when they, you know, when they retired, they, they, they want to have a, a life after, after kids. Yep. Um, what's, but what's allowing them to, to have that? I mean, they've still got this pull to grandchildren and wanting, wanting to have a relationship, but at the same time wanting, wanting to have an adventure. And I, I feel like you know, they, they are, they're, they're still living. They are, um, they're off in Las Vegas. I live in the UK. Um, What's allowing, what's allowing them to do that and still feel part of their family and, mm. and I think there's a whole I, I love your, your ideas about the economics and stuff but I think you know, there's, 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 a, you know, there's a whole set of issues there but, but there's a whole set of bit, social I, issues I, I, around I'll go back to what's allowing I'll, people to age properly yeah. and, and, and still have a life but, 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 but still be kind of tied to their family or whatever it's but not. there's a generational shift coming I think yeah. I mean I, I'll blame Kim's generation again 
Um, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I blame them too. Yeah. Look, I, I, but I think there, is, there really is a cultural shift coming, sorry, a, a, a demographic shift coming. I mean, we were talking, we were having a conversation recently about housing in London. There wasn't a rental market in London 15 years ago. It just didn't exist. And if you look at the biggest rise in housing in the last 10 years, it's co-housing. Um, 10 years ago, a student couldn't get a room in accommodation while he was studying, and he was doing a commerce degree. And three years into it, he left to set up a co-housing organisation. It's huge. I mean, it's taken off. Um, it's bed sits with communal facilities. So we need to get over this whole cultural um, issue around home ownership, which is, you know, is a, you know, again, it's going to take a couple of generations, I think, to shake that off. But we just do not have... Um, a, a culture coming through, I think, a young, younger generation who are going to look at housing as an asset. And that's the, the big concern over here is that your house is your asset for retirement, for schooling, for all sorts of things that drive the, drive the, the, the kind of society we live in. And I think that will shift. It will change. And it will change because of a younger generation coming through who get different value systems and an aging population that, that's changing. So I think... It's inevitable that we're going to have a, diff a completely different um, environment um, over the next couple of generations. But, but also, I think we need, we need to uh, not homogenise ageing as being um, uh, kind of decline and, and whatever. I mean, it's actually yeah. a time for adventure and, uh, in many ways. Absolutely. I, I think that's, yeah. that's also an exciting thing to think of. Yeah. Go up to the Sunshine Coast. Um, it looks as if it's fantastic for an ageing population. <laughs> Sorry. As someone with grey hair here. Okay, so there's at least four of us in the room. Um, my background, physiotherapist, ageing parents, lived, grandparents lived across the road, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. One of my big problems in this space is we talk without the sense of flow, that age is relevant to where you are, not where you've been or where you're going to. So if you were actually thinking about ageing, you would think about how many years till I die, because that's what ageing is. So a 10-year-old can be ageing much faster than I am at 60. So that's one thing that... I find really interesting in the debate at the moment is that we're having conversations about something that is completely natural and is, again, I come from a public policy, health policy background as well, so multi-thinking. But it worries me that we're compartmentalising these things rather than, you know, we've got a great big push now for mindfulness, the presence, the element of being as is. I believe that socially we have ostracised ageing to something that is foreign to be um, scared of and we only have to look at all of the ads around anti-ageing creams which I think is a human rights question. You know, so our whole mental models are around anti Ageing is something to be feared. And the second thing I'd like to bring into the conversation is the sense that, just let me, my, my, my memory has just gone for a minute, <laughs> is that all of the conversations that we have, with all due respect, and I've just spent the last year being an auditor of the funding instrument in aged care homes, is yet again 
most of what I saw in that period was about the chandeliers at the front of the um, design. And as a physio, I was even more concerned about the size of the rooms and the fact that people became dependent because they couldn't walk the 30 metres plus to the dining room. It only takes a lateral shift to actually, instead of being in north-south, to go east-west and you can still have the same facility. But all of that aside is that my life has, has been intellectually strong but for whatever reason has been financially and economically challenged at this stage in my life. And my big fear is that all of these discussions are great in the conceptual and you always have to have conceptual conversation before you go to it being pervasive across community. But my big worry is for all of the women in particular, but men as well, who have hit their 60s, 70s, 80s, told that we should work longer, the opportunities are not there. Um, men in social isolation, because they didn't set up these communities, having divorced, separated, etc., etc., personally, as well as many of my colleagues. I think you've got a utopian view in these conversations that are about... They're very small if you actually look at the baby boomer population who can afford these things that we're now setting up as being the utopian. And in the same way as marketing is pervasive, I find myself saying I'm not good enough because my children are going to be pushed to think that mum did poorly because she's not going to be able to afford the chandelier. So I think there's some really fundamental questions that are never asked, and we go off down those sort of silo thinking without coming back to, and I agree, I mean, I've done stuff in public economic stuff, but I still think we, we tend to talk about ageing as the other rather than part of flow, and that we talk about ageing as if it's a homogeneous cohort, and it is probably more important for us to design for the cohort that can't afford and for those that actually get then that as good design, those who want the chandelier, etc. et al., being able to apply that as their added on extras. So it's commentary. Um, single unskilled women who have very little superannuation, I think um, what, what, where are they going to be accommodated? I don't think they have um, sufficient um, resources to be able to afford one of these uh, apartments in Glen Waverley, for example. Just a comment. Can I just comment on that too, that there's also, we're talking, I mean, I, the, the theme is ageing Melbourne, Melbourne as a livable city, but there's also what happens to the people who are in the rural areas as well. So my grandparents are ageing in a small country town and one of my, sorry? <laughs> Excuse me. It's interesting to watch. My children have just moved to Seymour. And I'm about to put my hand up to go onto the board of the health service for these very reasons. Some of the conversations in auditing have been associated with small country towns being less wonderful in terms of ageing. 
the conversations in those communities where people have been there a long period of time, the respect and understanding of, of people is actually really interesting and it's those of us who sit outside that actually often have the problem that we're not going to get to see grandma or whatever, but grandma day to day, her life is shrinking anyway, is quite happy to potter around her, her house to her doctor, etc. So, again, I'd urge us to think about always the real versus what our own somewhat removed guilt is. But I'm not, I'm not saying that your grandma's not sad that she can't see you. So I've got... I'm lucky enough to have two grandparents still alive and one is living in an, a residential aged care facility and it's nothing like what, you've, what we've been talking about tonight. You know, it's a small country town facility and it's not, it's not a nice place to visit. Um, and the other is in her 90s and lives independently at home... Um, loves pottering around her garden, very independent, very happy and, you know, just she's just amazing, really. Yeah. So quite different experiences. But... And just uh, uh, to... Is there any more questions? But I want to come back to your points. There are a few more... Three more questions, but I think two points that come out of this multidimensionality and thinking about someone who is 65 could be more mobile and independent as someone who is 80, but the 80-year-old could be more independent than a 65-year-old. So thinking about that. And also the point of social inclusion. So thinking about not only uh, diversity in terms of different types of populations, but putting economics to the forefront as well. This person has had his hand up. Did you still want to make a comment, a question? Hi. Um, my name is Paul Rankin. I just have a question about... Uh, Living Housing Australia, uh, which uh, is something I came across a couple of years ago, they produced some guidelines. Um, it, was, it was a graduated scale of accreditation, um, an attempt, I suppose, to make universal design a bit more um, accessible to the marketplace. I was just wondering if any of the panellists have um, had recent experiences with that or any comment uh, as to why, it, uh, at least the last time I uh, checked in, uh, didn't seem to be gaining much traction. Um, yep, so we've got a, um, a new building that we're building um, in Carlton. We've got another um, uh, vertical retirement village building we're building there and we've um, designed it, um, our good architects from FKA that are sitting over there um, have designed it for us um, to meet the gold livable standard. Um, so most of the... Um, most of the criteria for the gold standard, um, I think, are quite easily accommodated. There are some small ones that are not so easily accommodated. And I think um, the mechanism doesn't have... Uh, it, you have to be gold or you're not. And so that might mean... Um, it actually means putting substantially more space in a bathroom than what you need to make a bathroom adaptable. And that's quite an expense to go through. So to reach that just that gold standard. So there's three standards. There's a silver, a gold and a platinum. Um, silver standard um, it more or less uh, is like a, just a generally meeting the adaptability code, but the, the gold standard goes further than that and the platinum is almost accessible ready. Um, so what we, we have been doing um, for all of our apartments, they, they're all adaptable to 1428, which is the accessibility code, but they're not necessarily um, immediately accessible. Um, and uh, in this particular um, building uh, that uh, 
we've gone to tender with and we will build um, probably next year, uh, it does meet the gold standard for apartments. Uh, what about volume housing? Has there been any action on that front? Because uh, that seems, it will seem to me to be um, an area that uh, where it uh, was not gaining much traction at all. Suburban volume housing. Volume? Did you say volume housing? Yes, volume ho- house and land. You know the the Simmons house. You know the, for gold the big stars, volume houses. Uh, for gold stars, are you talking about? Yes, I, I'm not for gold stars. I mean for livable standards. Exactly. And I, and I think um, that the point you're making is actually spot on. This is, and, and this goes back to Kim's point as well. All our housing should be meeting a, um, a standard for people with disabilities, um, a standard for people that may need um, uh, assistance, that may need care, um, and even for people with children um, getting prams around a house um, sometimes can be really, really difficult. Um, so, so I think that if we're looking to the future where um, we are integrating um, our elderly care into our society rather than saying, well, there's the place that the old people are and, in fact, it's not even in my suburb, it's not even in the suburb they started in, we do need to be looking at standards that um, provide housing that is accessible to to everybody, not just uh, to healthy, fit people. I don't think it's... I'm not all that curious about... I think we know what it takes to to design, you know, accessible housing and accessible environments at every scale. We know know what a a tram looks like that takes a wheelchair. The question is why we don't have them, you know. Uh, Even when we rebuild the entire tram stops throughout the city and we still don't have wheelchair access to trams. I mean, the, the, the design... It's not that hard to do. So there's a larger um, assemblage of political and economic forces that I think are the real blockage. Sure, it it costs more money, but we're one of the wealthiest societies on the planet. One of the tests, I think, for this is to... What what kind of neighbourhood would we design? What kind of public transport would we design? What kind of housing would we design if if we did not know what our own position in that society was? If we were blind to whether we would be the, the, the victims of that. And it seems to me we would then design the whole city, the whole society, uh, in an accessible way because it might be us who is old or um, infirm. Three more, one, two and three. I think that's all we have time for. Quickly, oh, and one more there as well, okay. Um, yeah, just very quickly, my name is Bastian and I just recently moved to Melbourne and every day I commute through Melbourne, I start realizing things, comparing things with, uh, with the city where I'm from, which is Berlin in Germany. And um, yeah, the gentleman in the middle um, initially um, addressed in terms of livability, something that I haven't heard before, which is was the DMA. And I was thinking, um, is this just like a personal, um, like a personal opinion or a personal goal, or is this something that is also integrated in city development in Melbourne? And if, if yes, are there examples in Melbourne apart from the CBD and its closer surroundings where this is kind of um, focused on? If that makes any sense. Um, so, 
if I understand correctly, um, you're asking about the density mix and access nexus. Uh, that's just my theory about how cities work. That's what makes cities tick. They're, for me, the when you drill down deeper beneath these, uh, if you like, that the. the Things like the experience of home and, the, and a sense of place and uh, a lot of the things that we value about the city, you know, the urban buzz, urban character, the things people say are being destroyed by the wrong kinds of development, these to me are all emergent effects that emerge over time incrementally uh, and they're often the things that we most value about urban life and uh, you know a sense of home is, is one of those they are they emerge they can't be put together as it were by using tweezers as a designer you know let's create this place by being meticulous about the built form it, it emerges over time and my sense is it emerges from paying attention to those deeper issues and it's not that the you know the design doesn't matter it is that you are designing the density you're which brings people closer together. You are designing the mix, which brings the various attractions closer together, and you're designing the access network, whether it happens to be the way in which people are walking around inside a building, the way in which they're walking around through a walkable neighbourhood, or the way in which they're getting around the city with public transport or cars. So that those seem to me to be the things that are most missing, uh, in some cities and in some parts of some cities. All right, thank you. Um, my question is in relation to, I guess, in terms of sustainability and affordability for aged care and retirement living, do you see the program overlap of facilities required by, say, a retirement village and facilities like the public facilities at, that senior schools and universities and primary schools have as being a way of making retirement living, living more affordable. Um, one case study I know of is in Swampscott High School in America, where they, the population, ageing population and the youth, young population was almost a one-to-one -one ratio. So they started using um, the high school facilities as senior facilities. And there's sort of like a, a mix. There's not necessarily an interaction between the two populations. There's a chance for that. But there's also basically a lack of having to rebuild those facilities. I'm just wondering what your views are on those interventions. Well, just a quick comment. The, I think the more you mix different ages, uh, the better. But, you know, bearing in mind that, uh, um, as was said before, we, people don't always want to live right on top of, um, you know, uh, uh, people of different age. I mean, I, I have grandkids, right, and they live, I'm lucky, they live about a 10-minute walk away. And I've got to tell you, that's just enough. Um, and, and I love seeing them, but I love that distance too. I don't want to live in the same house, at least not at this stage of my life. So it's, uh, um, so there's, it's, it's, and different people will be different about that. You know, there are many uh, cultural groups where the integration of uh, grandparents and so on into the, the three, into a, you know, a, a multi-age family would work quite well. Um, that I think, you know, the, the link with schools is a really important one because schools are empty so much of the time. School facilities are, or should be, public facilities. One of the great tragedies of this kind of neoliberal economy is that we pump public money into private schools who develop the best possible facilities which are not public and they're not available to the public. The swimming pools, the recreational facilities, the gyms, all of that stuff. 
that is not part of the public school system is not accessible to the rest of the community, uh, except at a price. So uh, any, any um, integration... Uh, thank you. My name is Layla. Thank you for the discussion so far. My question was for Lorraine, but not exclusively. Um, are there any ethnicities or cultural groups that are overrepresented in your um, in the facilities that you're aware of, or and and therefore, are there any cultures or ethnicities that are not represented so much in the facilities? And has there been any research to uh, gone into? perhaps the groups that are not represented as to how they deal with their ageing? Because it's something that is so cross-cultural, having family members that age. Um, yes, um, that, that's correct. So I think that um, aged care and retirement villages have very much been, um, you know, white middle-class um, uh, culture. Um, and But I do think that's changing. Um, we've got a um, floor in Carlton that is an Italian floor and it's appropriate... Um, uh, in that, that, that area because they can walk out um, to Ligon Street and have a coffee. Um, we are talking with the Brazilian community also. Um, they've contacted us um, uh, and we're talking to numerous um, other cultures. What we're finding is they do want to stick together. Uh, they don't particularly want a building of their own but they want a household or two households or three households. Uh, they quite like our household designs. Um, we're also working with um, uh, the Aboriginal community, uh, mostly in New South Wales, with the Land Council there. Uh, we have recently just um, been granted by, by the government 17 Aboriginal-specific um, aged care beds. Um, they are also um, wanting to stick together. They uh, um, grieve about having to uh, have their their relatives um, go into aged care where it is a um, white bread culture. Um, and so they're working with us um, to to uh, have um, both an adapted model um, within the type of model that we do, but also a, a, a total purpose designed um, model. So they they will have um, some communities that are um, within our communities and we will also build some uh, aged care facilities for them that are, are just for Indigenous and Aboriginal communities um, and that, that, that will be very much led by um, their community and it will um, be staffed um, as much as possible by their communities as well. Hi. Uh, final question, I guess. Uh, so, it's my question's uh, more of a comment. We know that life expectancy in certain areas of the world is quite high compared to others based upon a sense of community, a sense of integration, and we keep talking about this. Um, yet we continue to build these uh, aged care facilities that are segregated, that are not cross-generational, that, that don't really develop a sense of... like overall community, there might be a community there of old people, but there, are, there certainly isn't a community of, of cross-generational people. So my question is, and I think you were touching on it a little bit, but I, didn't, I would like to hear you go into it in a little bit more detail. How are we going to plan for future cities to develop a more sense, uh, a greater sense of community through design and development? Um, and I don't just mean living, I also mean entertainment and uh, walking down the street and being around older people, rather than separating them out and pushing them away.
I'll have a go at it. Look, I, I hope so. Um, but I would say, I think there's a little bit of confusion too around words like community and village. Um, I, I'm wary of the word village because I think there's, there's quite a lot of nostalgia for a form of village life that really never existed. Um, and, and, you know, it's a nice word. It, it implies a walkable neighbourhood, it implies mixed use, and it implies that, um, that, you know, there's access to a community of people who care for each other and there's quite a lot of social capital, and, and I like all of that. But I also think that uh, there's a tendency to try and produce the, uh, the village from the top down, to call it a village, um, and it becomes a brand and a marketing device. Um, uh, and even the word community, it doesn't necessarily... It, it means that people share space in common, and that's really important. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they all hold all the same views or beliefs in common. Um, I really, you know, I believe in a, that a mixed community where... Not, it's not, not where, it, where not everybody loves each other or even likes each other all the time, but that they share a sense... They share space and they send, share a sense of social concern... And it's a learning environment where people are learning about the world in which they live and, and they're encountering new and different things each day and it's not entirely predictable. There's something about this production of a village as a brand that produces predictability that I don't think has any deep sense of home uh, and it doesn't have any sense of learning and ongoing identity formation. Certainly when you're talking about neoliberalism like you were before, that, that is... That's the result of uh, putting and intensifying areas with older people at a profit, right? So it's not that's that's the problem. I think is that you're you're intensifying areas with these large developments. I know you're talking about um, community and and it being in some sort of superficial statement, but really, if you go about it and plan it in the right way, you can make a village within a city. I think. It might just be called a neighbourhood. Can I just add a comment there too, that we're focusing on this idea of community as being people who share the same space and the same place, but there's communities online as well. And I think we need to make sure that as people grow older, that they're given opportunities to be part of online communities as well as physical communities. One of the practical challenges of doing technology research in aged care facilities is that aged care, residential aged care facilities don't have Wi-Fi often, you know. So, so residents often don't have access to connectivity. They can't use Skype to talk to their grandchildren and so on. So we need to be making sure that those, um, that those opportunities are available. It's not just about what's physically present, but it's also what's, what's available to you um, over, at, virtually. I think we're going to have to wrap up. We've got, oh. See one. You've been. You have to. Yeah. Can we just take one more question? Then we'll need to wrap up. Thank you. I just wanted to make a comment as someone, as a young person who spends a lot of time in an aged care facility, um, visiting my mum. I, I get the point that we don't want to be wasting money on chandeliers and and the interior design, but you also have to make it a nice place to visit because it's quite a horrible thing to visit someone in an aged care facility and the grief associated with that. And we can establish a broader community within the aged care facility of children and grandchildren and friends and relatives if we make them nice places to go. 
Um, and I guess that was that was the point. And the yeah, the benefit of making it a nice place is that you encourage more people to visit. And because those people aren't so mobile and can't get to other places, you can bring people to them. And you're, it's beneficial to your loved one who's in there, but it's also beneficial to everybody. And because it's such a tough thing going to an aged care facility, there are so many people who don't get any visitors. So your visit to your relative makes um, such a difference difference to other residents. So just to comment on the, the benefits of nice places. So I think that should end the conversation here. Um, it's such a, a broad and complex topic and I guess we've gone through uh, many different scales of the body, of the building, of the neighbourhood, of the city itself, also th intersecting with social and economic policy. We've kind of talked about everything, we've kind of talked about nothing at the same time. So I, I just hope that from this conversation you take away a few ideas away home with you and for me it's quite illuminating as well. I'd like to thank the panellists with us tonight with Kim, Lorraine, Jenny and Alan and also thank the Hallmark Ageing Research Initiative at the University of Melbourne and the Melbourne School of Design and also to M Pavilion for hosting us and thank you all. Cheers. Thank you.